Jim. Jim. Call 911. Jim. Jim. How could you have done this? Jim! I can't believe you committed suicide. I cannot believe you committed suicide. How could you have done this? How could you have committed suicide? I can't help you out of this one, Jim. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time NJN sound associate editor, Andrew Raphael. I can't believe it's all one person. That's amazing. (laughs) I can't believe you didn't get an ambient track. (laughs) I can't believe you didn't record sound. (laughs) And for this, our 100th episode, we're taking a break from the... I was going to buy party poppers, but then I couldn't be asked. (laughs) That sums us up, really. That's why it's taken us 14, 15 years to get here. Um, (laughs) And for this, our 100th episode, we're taking a break from the usual trash we critique in order to look at a true maverick filmmaker at the top of his game. You can keep your Steven Spielbergs, Ridley Scotts, James Camerons and Catherine Bigelows. Those are but mere mortals next to this god level of excellence that this filmmaker has proven to be. That's right, we're watching David Lynch with a head injury, Neil Breen's (laughs) Fateful Findings. (laughs) But does this auteur piece leave us questioning our very existence? Or does Fateful Findings leave us asking, why have I watched this film? I can't believe I have watched this film. I cannot believe I have watched this film. Find out after the trailer. I was given paranormal powers as a child. I've hacked into just about all the information I need. They have no idea. No more books! You were given a power. Others want to take this from me. He's writing about government secrets. I knew I loved you when I was eight years old. All this time, I haven't been working on my next book. I've hacked into the most secret government and corporate secrets. I'm using it to make a real difference. and I'm going to expose them all. Should I be afraid? Should we be afraid? I'm not ready for this. I want to be honest with all of you. I've been hacking into government and corporate systems all over the country. You're going to get yourself killed. But you should be scared, because it is the truth. Act now, on your own, 
outside of the corporate systems and these incompetent politicians. You want to get out of here, but you can't see what's about to happen. Serial laptop murderer Neil Breen, <laughs> a filmmaker who single-handedly puts the autism in autorism, plays Dylan, an apparently celebrated author who needs five different laptop computers to write a single novel. He suffers an existential and otherworldly crisis after a life-altering car accident. But fortunately for this crusty, balding, saggy-faced, 60-year-old looking dude, he has enough money to hire a bunch of models to rub himself up against in the nude. Oh, sorry, I actually think I just started talking about Neil Breen there. (laughs) With its incomprehensible narrative and strange editing style, the best way to watch Fateful Findings is to just let it wash over you. Like a shower of shit. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I mean, there's plenty more that I could get into in my little write-up there that yeah, I thought, yeah. I'm going to leave for the show. Yeah, I just want to give an idea, but I haven't written more notes for a film than I have for this one. And I had to actively stop myself from writing notes because at one point I was four pages in and I wrote, here you go, let me just bring it up here. I need to stop writing notes. It's only the 14-minute mark. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so that shows you just what's going on with this film. But Andy, fateful findings. Yes. Was this a fateful finding of your own? Um. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. When did we first come across this film? Oh, God. I mean, I hate to say it. I can't believe I'm about to say this. Yeah. I cannot believe. <laughs> Sorry, that's going to be my go-to joke throughout the episode. Uh. But I think it was Max Landis on Red Letter Media that yeah. kind of opened yeah. the door to the Neil Breenverse to me. Yeah. I mean, you might have to bleep his name. <laughs> Nobody likes to talk about Max Landis anymore. Yeah. Wasn't it on best of the worst red letter media when they were talking about double down yes yeah which is neil brain's first feature which is the one where he spends most of their time eating tuna in the middle of the desert but it's ironically the most professional looking of all of his films even though it's the first (laughs) one because the only film that's shot on film whereas all of his other films seem to be shot on a dv camera from 1999 (laughs) yeah the type of shit that i was using in like 2003 at school yeah but i think the next instance i heard of a film by neil breen obviously he made a film in between called i am here dot 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 now which is one of the best bad movie titles of all time (laughs) you can't forget the dot 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 and you've got to actually say dot dot dot. yeah yeah but i'm pretty (laughs) sure um it wasn't called that at the time but uh weird movies with mark did a video mm. on this film, the one that we're talking about now, because that would have been the latest one. I think it was just made just prior to the release of Pass Through, which is the, the his fourth opus. And I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe how <laughs> much worse it looked compared to Double Down, because Double Down looked bad, but this looked yeah. worse. At least it sounds great. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at least it's because yeah. he put all of his money into sound editing and music. Into his, like, two music library tracks that he bought. <laughs> yeah, these are definitely Kevin McLeod tracks, even though it says music by Neil Breen at the end. Well, it's his musical director, which basically means he paid for the music. Ah. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think this ended up being the real 
breakout film for Neil Breen. This is almost like the definitive Neil Breen film. Yeah. It's the most quoted of all of his films. And it's mm-hmm. got the most famous sequences. Yeah. And it's almost like a transitional film as well because it's a halfway house between his initial style and the style that he is now fully into, which is the whole um, everything on green screen, George yes, Lucas yeah. style. <laughs> I can't believe, I mean, I'm saying it again, but I can't believe we're actually like comparing him to George Lucas in terms of like his different styles. Oh yeah, and then he went full green screen. Yeah, I mean, he has the same tone of voice. He has that same monotone voice. <laughs> All of the stormtroopers in, you know, Twisted Pair were CGI. Whereas yeah, I, yeah. I prefer, I prefer the uh, earlier stuff. You know, when uh, the stormtroopers wore actual costumes. <laughs> it's funny that there's an old episode of Doctor Who from the late seventies called Underworld, mm-hmm. which is a Tom Baker, and this series was made when there was high inflation in the UK, and it was because it was towards the end of the series the rate of inflation was going up by the week. There was no money left to build sets. So to get around this, they built sets for certain parts of the serial, like the spaceship, but about 40% of the episode takes place in caves. So what they decided to do was build a small model of the set of the caves and then film the rest using what the BBC termed as colour separation overlay which basically is the oldie worldy video version of green screen and the quality level of that is better than what Neil Breen is doing now (laughs) yeah there's a lot more thought it's more convincing (laughs) yeah I mean I have seen a lot of Neil Breen I didn't mean that to rhyme the Breeniverse the Breeniverse but I've never really sat down and watched a film all the way through like I did watch Fateful Findings this morning. For me, normally, it's like I'll watch half an hour and then skim through if a scene's Mm -hmm. going on too long or I'll skip through it. This time, I sat down and I studied the film. And it's the first time I've done that with one of Neil Breen's films. Each film, I'd say, I've seen about 40 minutes of. Yeah. So I was glad to do this. And we have talked about covering Neil Breen or a Neil Breen film on the podcast before. But the reason that I think it was best to wait is I've seen lots of videos on YouTube of people covering the topic mm-hmm. and covering different films. And I just wanted to give it that space and try and go at it fresh without any preconceived notions. I really wanted to give him a chance. <laughs> you know, The same yeah. as we would any other film. I mean, it's shit, but it's a level of shit that's just completely unattainable by most filmmakers. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing about Neil Breen is, unlike a lot of bad filmmakers, he is a director with vision. And yes, yeah. his vision remains consistent throughout all of his films, mm-hmm. and he has a very <laughs> distinctive style. Yeah, and he has a, a very distinctive co-star as well. Yeah. Which is always... <laughs> yeah. But... Like you were saying before, he is the David Lynch of bad movies. He is the David Lynch of head injuries. Yeah, and there's there's no two <laughs> ways about that. He, he, he's David Lynch is a definite influence on his films, and I think Fateful Findings is maybe the most Lynchian of all of his films. Yeah. 
And maybe looking at some of Twin Peaks season three, Neil yeah. Breen has been an influence <laughs> on David <Yeah>. Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because even though this film was made all five years before Twin Peaks The Return, yeah. there are snippets of it that remind me of that. So you can see what he's going for. The thing is about that question I wanted to ask, and I did have this written down, so I think now's a good time to ask it since you've just yeah. touched upon it. But is this final film what he was aiming for? Or is it just the closest he's been able to get to it? Mm. Because I, when I'm watching it, I'm like, for all of the issues with the audio and for all of the issues with the composition and, you know, shot to shot, there's no part of me that thinks that surely that's not an accident. That is a conscious choice to to shoot something a certain way or to cut the audio short here or make it go on too long there because there's no way you can't notice that as an error. Mm. If you get me, it's just like the complete package. Yeah, I saw a quote on YouTube. I was watching a bit of... Um pass through or something uh pass through which does sound like a fucking bowel <laughs> movement, bowel movement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there's quite a few of his films on youtube but there was a quote underneath one of them that was basically saying that neil brains found the formula the secret formula for a perfect bad movie and he he knows it and he's exploiting it to the hilt he's definitely like an ed wood type where there's real yes. sincerity in what he's doing. I don't think he's doing any of this cynically, unlike, say, Tommy Wiseau, where he may he maybe doesn't understand what it is, but he's mm-hmm. on the bandwagon now. Yes, yeah, he's... Whereas Neil Breen's a bit more pure in terms of his naivety and his intentions of making the films. I do believe that he is passionate about making his films and his ideas and it comes through because despite how incompetent the films are there's nothing lazy or phoned in about the kind of things he's wanting to do yeah. with his films so he has that going for him i think that's created the mystique around him and his films and why they are so popular in the bad movie community mm-hmm. yeah i mean because you look at tommy Wiseau and he has made one legitimately bad piece of honest filmmaking and that was the room he hasn't made anything on that level since and that's because he's constantly trying to place himself as in on that joke that was the first time that he had made something and he did it with pure sincerity it turned out to be this complete hit for all of the wrong reasons and all he's done since then is try to cash in on it and try to make it seem like with the room oh it was just comedy i always meant it to be viewed that way Mm -hmm. so that's his whole kind of like stick ever since is just trying to recapture that but with a knowing wink and it doesn't work it just makes his films just as incomprehensible but also so much harder to watch And I think that's something that Neil Breen has. As you say, it's the sincerity of it. And that is something that so many filmmakers of this level, so many bad filmmakers, I mean, we saw it even like going from Birdemic to Birdemic 2 and 3. Yeah, yeah. Is Birdemic's truly a horrible, horrible piece of shit film, but it's an honestly horrible film. Yeah, yeah. The sequels are just trying so hard to wink at you to say, hey, look, I'm actually in on this. Yeah. It doesn't work. And somehow Neil Breen has managed to 
continue that throughout his entire career because I look yeah. at it in terms of its entirety. I look at the last film that he released, and if he's in on the joke, if he knows it, I can't tell. He's hiding it well. <laughs> he's hiding it very well because his films feel so honest and sincere in the how bad they are, and they share the same sort of themes, the same messages, the same... They all feel part of a tapestry that is Neil Breen, you know? So, yeah, I think he's one of the few filmmakers of this type that has managed to maintain it throughout, really, his entire career so far. And despite how, like you say, how incomprehensible the films are and how weirdly paced, they have a really strange rhythm to them, you can't deny that the films don't have a degree of imagination to them. Yeah. Which is, again, very unlike a lot of bad movies. A lot of bad movies are devoid of anything. They're usually very cookie-cutter yeah. of what they're trying to portray. Whereas he's reaching, I mean, he's he's reaching for something <laughs> Boy, much is he higher. Reaching. I mean, it's, really, <laughs> it's very much exceeding his grasp, but he's trying to get somewhere with it. Yeah, he's always thinking, what kind of story can I tell with 30% stock footage? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think that's the worst <laughs> over time. Yeah, it certainly has. As well, yeah. I mean, I was quite shocked that this one is pretty low on the whole stock footage. Um, yeah. That scale. It's it's actually, it's got some. It's got some noticeable stock footage, but not as much as I've seen before. No. And it's got some interesting visual creative choices, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure whether in, they're an intentional thing, but... They give the film a very distinct style. <laughs> like he has this penchant for shooting scenes of people talking where you just see their legs, or yeah. it's very, very low to the ground looking up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah. There's a shot after he gets run over where you just see a lot of bystanders' feet, and it's like five guys wearing the, almost the same pair of jeans and trainers. <laughs> Just the Levi's budget on this film must have been pretty yeah. high. And it's definitely a, a stylistic choice because I watched the beginning of Pass Through straight after I finished this film and the opening of that film has a very similar shot of a group of people where it's just their legs going across the desert. It's like, I've spent this money on the jeans, I'm going to get yeah. use out of them. <laughs> <laughs> Every penny's on that screen. It's definitely things where he's got a creative toolbox like he's not just doing things completely randomly i think that's his discord handle creative (laughs) toolbox (laughs) i mean as you're probably aware i'm trying to talk about this like a serious film it's not gonna last long yeah (laughs) if you watch any neil breen film announcement he always says this he talks about the films as being legitimate theatrical features well he is a master of cinema you know you need to see this on a big screen it's like you can go see you know for all the barbenheimer shit it should have been like oppenheimer and twisted pair you know imax biggest screen you can get (laughs) yeah k to tortured crossing um (laughs) (laughs) twisted pair sounds like what happened to me when i accidentally got my bollocks tied up where they needed surgery. <laughs> Every time I see that film, I'm like, yeah, I've had a twisted pair. Didn't half hurt. Pretty much all of his <laughs> titles are a double entendre. Like, Double yeah. Down, 
I am yeah. here. Dot dot dot. Now, <laughs> now. Fateful, fateful, fateful findings. findings. <laughs> Pass through. Pass through. Yeah. <laughs> Twisted pair and K the tortured crossing. <laughs> I hope the transition was okay for Cade. <laughs> I've heard it was a rather tortured crossing. Oh. But yeah, in 2020, you decided to do a five-film retrospective, and it's just a wonderful. I mean, that even if you just watch like the uh, the sort of announcement trailer, it's just a wonderful thing to behold because he talks about his films very seriously. They are incredibly personal pieces of work for him. Just so you um, know, if when it gets to the inevitable video of this episode. Yeah, I am going to be showing footage over everything that you're saying right now about how it's like an incredibly personal, and it's going to have like Cade <laughs> jumping off like the yeah. side of a warehouse while it explodes behind him, and the yeah. same like explosion sound effect loop just plays over and over and over again at like yeah. max decibel volume. <laughs> but it's just a wonderful thing to behold. Of it, have you seen the somebody's edited that to the masterclass? intro so they've basically made it look as if neil breen's presenting a masterclass, and it's wonderful that's brilliant it's great that is fantastic but yeah going back to fateful findings it is a his attempt at making a david lynch film it's kind of a remake of double down but yeah. with extra added david lynch yeah. into it to the point where those two threads don't really mesh with each other they're just sort of doing their own thing simultaneously and it's just a crazy old ride and it's just so bizarre the pace is weird it feels like the scene's missing conflict starts from nothing and any tragedy in the film is very swiftly forgotten about Mm -hmm. well even from like a shot to shot basis you have two characters for example at a barbecue they have a falling out while they're stood at the grill. And then in the next shot, they're friends. It's like Neil Breen doesn't have object permanence, you know? It's yeah, like yeah. he's got the mind of a toddler that if you just put a fucking towel up in front of your face, you'll think he disappeared. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's that kind of thing. Yeah. He doesn't, he can't see things through. And that's something that, how do you not notice that? But also, like, here's a question to ask just on that topic. Do you remember that there's narration in this film? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very sporadic it's even more sporadic than the, the fucking island of dr moreau that we did yeah yeah <laughs> it begins like about two or three minutes in yeah but it doesn't start with like an introduction it starts like you've been listening to it throughout the entire scene yeah and that it's just another line of narration it's almost like he forgot to press record early <laughs> And <laughs> or he just accidentally deleted it and, <laughs> and couldn't get it back because uh, yeah. he didn't know what he was doing in the editing day. <laughs> I feel like whole scenes have accidentally been deleted. <laughs> He's not filmed it again. I was thinking this whilst I was watching it, right? And to give him some degree of credit, because I'm being very generous tonight, if a competent filmmaker remade this film, would it actually be okay? <laughs> Maybe not the last like five minutes of the film, but in terms of the basic premise and the story, if actually it was made by a proper writer and a proper director yeah. and filmed competently, would it actually work? <laughs> I mean, that's one of those questions, though, isn't it? It's like um, 
if you take the few things that work on a certain level from these films and make them into something that's legitimate, yeah, they might work, but would they lose what makes them great? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and that's what I think of with this because I, I do agree. I think like, oh, if you take, you know, a very loose thread here and a very loose thread there, you could and and gave it to someone like David Lynch and mm. ask them to. Because everything, like, with the mushroom at the beginning, it turning into a, a box, and that almost feels very lynchy, and that feels like almost, you know, finding the ear in the middle of the field in blue velvet. And, yeah, and, and like I say, that shot of the book on the stand in the storage... Storage container in his mind. That literally could have been pulled... I mean, it would have been better shot, but it could have been pulled from Twin Peaks, The Return. Season three, yeah. Yeah, easily. For sure. There's a, quite a few shots in that series that are like that. <laughs> And remember, there's a scene in the film where he travels to the middle of the desert to see the book, and then he goes home. Yeah. <laughs> That's all he does. He travels to the middle of the desert, gets out of his car, looks into the desert, and there's the book yeah. on a stand. It disappears, and then the next shot, he's just back at home again. And like you were saying before about, is this what he intended, like the final result? And in some ways, having now found out how he came about conceiving this film, I may have to say yes. I do. I think it is. Because according to IMDb, the idea for this film came to him in a dream after he'd been to a cheese festival. So <laughs> this film is legitimately a filmed version of a cheese dream. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? To be honest, right? Some filmmakers have like fever dreams and they create the Terminator. Yeah. You know, like James Cameron. Is <laughs> Neil Breen had a cheese dream? <laughs> Neil Breen had a cheese dream and came up with fateful findings. He was like, I need I need to stand in the shower with a beautiful woman and just be pouring with blood <laughs> out of an orifice you cannot see. Yeah. <laughs> and if you've ever had a cheese dream, this is what it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> he succeeded is. perfectly. This is like moldy cheese. This is, you yeah. know, it's got veins of mystery mode. <laughs> yeah I can see that the thing is I find Neil Breen to be a bit of an enigma not yeah. just in terms of the films but I can't imagine him in real life this character that maybe he's created but is probably it feels like this is him I can't imagine I cannot believe you've done it I can't I can't stop saying that <laughs> honestly I've uh, seen it now it's just lodged in my brain every time yeah. I repeat something it just sounds like a Neil Breen character but I cannot imagine him operating day-to-day -day life. I can't see it or hear it. And the idea of Neil Breen being at like a cheese and wine festival, <laughs> it seems like an oddity to me. Mm. But yeah, he somehow has captured the feeling of a feverish cheese dream. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think for me, it's just the fact that he's tried to... You've got all this kind of supernatural stuff and he's tried to, in a way, tack on his usual theme of government conspiracies. And <laughs> they just don't meet in the middle at all. And any part of the film that goes into hacking into government systems... Where he hacks the planet. <laughs> like hackers. 
it just comes so out of nowhere and it yeah. clashes with anything else that's going on in the film throughout. His computers must be made of adamantium because I only need to fart near mine and it, <laughs> and it like it won't turn on. It just blue screens on me. He like throws books at his computers. He's you know throws them off the desk like really early on, and then he's always on them afterwards. I've watched so many critiques about Neil Breen, and not one person has mentioned IKEA showrooms. So I haven't been to an IKEA for a while now, but back in the day, back in the yeah. sort of nineties, two thousands, whenever you went to an IKEA you'd go through the showrooms and they'd have like mock-up living rooms and mock-up yes, offices yeah. showcasing the furniture. They'd always have fake moulded plastic laptops and moulded plastic computers and TVs yeah. and stuff. And I feel like Neil Breen's bought a job lot of those. And oh, 100%. Used them. <laughs> I think they even had like um, Swedish books and stuff like that in there. And I feel like he's just gone to an Ikea. Waited outside <laughs> next to the bins. Next to a load of laptops. <laughs> <laughs> and just use them as props. Because even when he's holding or throwing the laptops or they fall over, there doesn't seem to be any particular mass to them, which suggests no. to me that they are that kind of like fake laptop where there's literally nothing inside them. And they do look as chunky as like early 90s laptops, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I expected him to part like one of those mobile phones that's about like twice the size of his head. And I think that's <laughs> the thing. I think Neil Brim was so proud of these stunt laptops and these stunt books that he had it in his head that he would abuse them as much as possible on film just to say that these are the million dollar shots yeah this is what our audience is gonna see we've got <laughs> we've got 17 ikea laptops so we can do whatever the fuck we want to them <laughs> <laughs> finally some real production value and he must have enjoyed it because apparently the scene where he's throwing the books around that was done 27 times 27, they did 27 times. takes of that scene <laughs> Yeah, it was. It's like a. It's like that scene with Newt in Aliens where he kept on having to redo the uh, the shot of her falling down the uh, venting shaft yeah. because she kept smiling and laughing every time he did it. <laughs> like Neil, you're smiling again. Take twenty five. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing with Neil Brain is that people may point and laugh and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, we are going to. I know, but to be perfectly honest, Neil Brain is living his best life. He so, is. He is. He's doing what he loves. He can throw shit about on screen. He's, uh, you know, semi-nude in front of models. <laughs> in front of beautiful women who clearly do not want to be there. <laughs> Against yeah. their will, it seems, oh, at some point. There is a, his wife in this film will not kiss him on the lips. No. She is adamant about that. Every time, she just gives him the slight side lip. Just, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I've not been paid enough for this shit. <laughs> no, no, no. And it's somehow, right, I've got some reviews later on in the episode. Yeah. I'm going to ask you for what was the star rating for each review. But one of the reviews, I'm just going to bring it up here. On the topic of the models, there's a review that I found that did have their headline on it that it's oddly entertaining, but shows the wrong nips and butt. As in, Neil Breen likes to get his nips and butt out, yeah. but he can never quite convince his yeah. female co-stars to get the nipples out. No, Although he no. does get someone completely nude in this, but we definitely see more of him than we do of her. He managed it in Double Down. Is that the pool scene? Yeah, the pool scene. He ma And I think he's tried 
every single film since. And we see his bollocks in that as well, don't we? Yes, we do. So it's like it's a yin and yang thing, a give and take, yeah. you know. <laughs> you might get some lady nipples, but you also have to see Neil Breen's balls. And I don't know what it is about filmmakers of this ilk where they feel the need to expose themselves in this way. You know, if you watch The Room, Tommy Wiseau's buttocks are in shot for about 15% of the film, I think. Uh, yes, I do so. have some information that might bring Neil Breen down a peg or two in a lot of people's mind, but I don't think this is something that anyone will have... Like, it's not a conclusion that anybody hasn't come to already, you know? It's, it's yeah, something yeah. that we all already kind of know about him. And there was an interview with Kathy Corpus, who was the female lead in pass through i listened to one interview with her she was in, um, yeah. on a podcast and she was talking about her experience making that however there was a link to another interview with her on the website that was on and in the write-up for the interview it did have a quote from kathy corpus who said that there's a kind of me too thing happening with neil breen as well in terms of why he's making this film and what he's making them for it's about the kind of close contact with model-esque women that he does get. However, that interview was taken down. <laughs> yeah. And it's theorized that Neil Breen had probably uh, reached out or there's some NDAs that had been signed or that type of thing <laughs> about the making of these films that only he can talk about them. Because if you do look online, there is very little in the way with interviews with his casts of these yeah. films. And there are people out there that want to speak to them, but they never do. It's not like Birdemic or The Room where people no, can't no. wait to tell their stories. With his films, the casts are very stum. And there are people in this film that have worked in legitimate films before. His wife in this film was a model in Zoolander. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing. But they do not talk about working with Neil Breen. And I think that there's something there that it's in the contract yeah. before you even begin. And this is just purely conjecture on my side. So we can't take down this podcast. <laughs> I mean, that's the... The mystical thing about Neil Breen, everything begins and ends with Neil Breen. With him, yeah. It's a true auteur filmmaker, for better or worse. <laughs> everything begins and ends with Neil Breen. And it's a weird one because I think he's, you can't work out whether it is like a narcissism thing or any... Because he's so expressionless, he's one of these people who's impossible to read. Yes, yeah that I think that's what's created this mystique. You can't work out whether he's in on the joke, whether he's getting a kick out of certain things. In a way, his maybe ineptitude at acting has yeah. created this kind of, like you say, mysticism surrounding him. Yeah. Because, yeah, you don't know what angle he has with this. The thing I can't get my head around when I watch this film, and I watch Neil Breen films, what, what I struggle with is that there are issues with his films that... I went to film school. I went to college yeah. and studied film. There are things that I did on my first film that were clearly wrong. Things as simple as, for a couple of scenes, when we first started filming my first film, we forgot to take ambient tracks for each of the individual scenes in, in different locations that we were shooting in. So yeah. we had to kind of come up with that on the fly afterwards. That's something that you make the mistake of once... And you realise mm -hmm. not to yeah. do it again because it's noticeable. There's things throughout his entire filmmaking that 
they are the same mistakes repeated. It's almost like he kind of arrived at a certain level and has just stayed there. Yeah, or he's owned his mistakes. He's made them part of his style. <laughs> exactly, that's it. That's why when I watch this, Fateful Findings, and I hear the audio cut off too early, or I, I see an edit that's a bit skewed, and I hear that there's no ambient track here, there never was meant to be. It doesn't even occur to him. It's just like, this is how it's supposed to be. This is the final product in his mind. And that's why I do think that when he watches this and he hears it back, he's like, this is what I wanted. Yeah. Because there are things that you could fix within a couple of seconds with the editing software. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... But is how he wanted it. It's one of those things that you'll never quite work out. You'd have to be a fly on the wall in the editing bay or on set to know. I don't want to be a fly on the wall anywhere near Neil Breen, to be fair. No. <laughs> he looks like he's got a certain smell to him, you know? Oh, and God forbid, any time he tries to attempt to smile in this film, it's just one <laughs> like of Like a psychopath. It's just one of the most unsettling things I've ever seen in my entire life. It's like that scene in Terminator 2. Yeah, That deleted really scene is. where the T-800 tries to replicate a smile. It really is. It's been said many times about Neil Breen that it's like an alien's come down. Like, he is that alien in I Am Here Now. Yeah. Or he's a sentient AI. Maybe he's trying to tell us something with this film. It's like, he is this, like, yeah. outsider from another world. And he's trying to interpret the human condition via <laughs> <laughs> film. And again, there's things like we were talking about before with, like, this isn't appropriate. Like, there's the whole The Other Couple's Daughter subplot, which is just weird because it, mm -hmm. it starts out of nowhere and then goes nowhere and then just gets forgotten about you could just pull that out of the film completely and you wouldn't it wouldn't make any difference at all you could pull everything out of the film regarding the neighbors completely yeah and maybe his wife <laughs> <laughs> i mean to be honest this is a short film yeah <laughs> stretched out to one hour 40 minutes yeah. it's like a, a cozy 10 minute piece <laughs> stretched out to... <laughs> i mean this is a film about a guy who's like he's got everyday problems like everyone else you know he's yeah. dealing with the fact that he's so suddenly <laughs> had this existential and spiritual experience whilst also trying to put off the advances of every woman in his life who seemingly yeah. wants to fuck him it's like i just want to hack the planet but everybody just wants to fuck me yeah what on earth is going on <laughs> <laughs> i can't believe you want to fuck me <laughs> i cannot believe <laughs> the thing is as well like there's certain scenes in the film i've got notes on like a scene by scene basis that we've got to get into shortly yeah but there's like a scene in the film where the scene in which he gets run over by the Rolls Royce and yeah. his wife is on the phone to him and it keeps cutting back to her and she's just saying, talk to me, Dylan. Dylan, Dylan, talk to me. Dylan, are you there? Talk to me. Over and over again. She's talking like Neil Breen. Everybody talks like Neil yeah, Breen yeah. in this film. But she's like clearly as well at times, she's so uncomfortable. She's looking off camera waiting for her cut. Or to be told, you know, you're done. And she's just being like left yeah, out yeah. there to hang to dry on camera. And she's just like, talk to me, Dylan. Talk to me. Talk to me, Dylan. You know, it's like, <laughs> what do I have to do? How many times do I have to say this? <laughs> what do I have to do for you to yell cut? <laughs> <laughs> I'll pause. Wait <laughs> to oh, he wants me to continue. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can sense that level of discomfort from the rest of the 
cast. I was reading before as well that the uh, considering the the plot of um, these two childhood friends who find this box in the woods and all that, and the fact that they reconnect many years later and all that, the fact that there's no there way is, he's the same age as her. I mean, I read on IMDb that they're actually it's thirty two years that thirty two years, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, if he really wanted her to be in the film, you could have actually explained it in a Lynchian way. Like he has yeah. this, like I'm going to call it the Beige Lodge because mm-hmm. I feel like it's his tribute to the black, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the white and red lodges and the black lodge, that kind of thing. Yeah, that he has this netherworld space that he has visions of him being in and stuff. And you could have explained it that she was trapped in there and that time moves differently in the lodge. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that she's come back and you could have done it that way. But no, he legitimately tries to make it look like she's supposed to be the same age as him. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's ego again. It's pure. Yeah, But also it makes me think that he's got one of those advanced aging illnesses. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, you know, <laughs> like Jack. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, the thing is, as well, he looks like he's appropriately aged more for the the spiritual advisor he goes to. <laughs> she has a face, and I don't like to normally talk about people's looks, but she has a face that has so many wrinkles on it. She looks like she's been put through that face app about fifteen times. You know, and it just gets slowly more and more (laughs) grotesque looking (laughs) as more and more wrinkles are applied. And she looks like she's got the reddest eyes I've ever seen. She's like completely stoned off a rocker. I mean, I thought that the lady that played that character, Dr. Andra, was fantastic. She was easily like the best and most competent part of the film in terms of her delivery. Like you could actually genuinely picture her in a david lynch film being that kind of character and the fact that i think i looked on the credits the um the other therapist is actually her husband in real life (laughs) i like that they must have been shot in this on the same day in the same building but he looks like rudy giuliani (laughs) (laughs) yeah just just stains running down his face in every scene just like from his hair (laughs) i mean i like that about these kind of films and also i can't believe i cannot believe i'm doing this i cannot believe i'm saying this but i can't believe i'm actually going to once more compare neil breen to david lynch but on a level of like oh this is something that they both do that i really like yeah but they get actors who are legitimate people for these kind of roles the thing with Neil Breen is most of his films are just like populated by for women supermodels and for men some dudes, <laughs> middle-aged dudes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> middle-aged dudes. Yeah. Every now and again, you get like actors in us that are like like her, the spiritual advisor. There's a, like an oddity to it, and it's like, oh yeah. yeah, you know, with her you could picture in something else. David Lynch does that as well. Like he picks people that feel like real people and places them in yeah. unlikely situations and asks them to bring something of their own to it. Every now and again, they Neil Breen manages to do the same. I will say, talking about the actors for a second, that the wig on that doctor mm-hmm. is a sight to behold because he looks about the doctor <laughs> himself looks about eighty years old, and he's yep. got this like thirty-year-old trailer trash mullet wig thing <laughs> on, and it's just like slightly on mullet, but it's like perfect. Yeah. There's not a single grey hair on it. It, yeah. <laughs> it looks like 
he's just one cough away from it flying in the air at any moment. <laughs> yeah. But there's no way that that's a real hospital. <laughs> no. I love when he peels off his drips because they're obviously not attached to anywhere. They're just literally attached by tape. They don't even put like a little prick of blood on it or something no. like that. And I like how Leah comes into the room and checks his pulse and says uh, he's really weak. He's got a heart monitor hooked up to him. We can hear it beeping. You don't have to check his pulse. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> I love the line later on where she says, oh, I didn't even check your name on the on the thing. <laughs> and it's like, that's like one of the first things that a doctor does. Yeah. She's like, like he's check. not my patient, but I thought I'd yeah. come and have a look. It's like, I'm not a doctor, but I thought I'd have a, come and have a look. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I, I thought I'd have a nosy, a little goosey ganders, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the bandage as well that's over his face seems to like go inside his mouth. <laughs> I love it. I love that bandage. It's magical. It's a magical day. <laughs> it's a magical day. <laughs> yeah. And to point something out as well, like on a scene by scene basis, to go back to the part in which he was run over by the Rolls Royce, I love the line It's the Rolls Royce that hit him. I saw it. I am a witness, says some guy. <laughs> Yeah. who's standing in front of him whilst like Neil Breen's on the floor covered in blood in front of a Rolls Royce that's covered in blood. <laughs> I don't think we need someone to say the Rolls Royce yeah. did it. I think it's probably that car that's covered head to toe in blood <laughs> in this dude's blood. That's probably the car that hit him. <laughs> yeah, that is classic bad movie tell whilst showing simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> Because you have the old adage with legitimate films where it's like show don't tell and you know films get accused of telling and not showing but in bad films they do both simultaneously. It's like, it's like we need to cover all bases and maybe yeah. maybe include a few more. And just the way that sequence is edited as well is quite magical and it's pure incompetence. Is the woman in the car someone special? Like is the Rolls Royce driver, does that ever come back? Wasn't that meant to be like another version of the the man in black with the shoes, but like the female version? I feel like right. he was going somewhere with that and then just forgot about it or just thought it wasn't. I think sometimes he thinks that, right, the audience will get it now. <laughs> you know what? I don't often say this about films, but I often say about studios and films that are being made that they think audiences are stupid. For Neil Breen, at, at points I want to say, you know what? Pretend I'm a five-year-old yeah, <laughs> yeah. and explain it to me that way. I might have more chance of getting it. In his own mind, the whole thing makes sense, yeah. but he doesn't quite know how to actually convey that. You know, you can say that for many bad filmmakers where they just don't have the skills or the aptitude. That's what I worried about when I made films yeah. when I was at film school. I constantly worried that, does this actually make sense or does it only make sense because I'm in the belly of the beast? Yeah, and I've worked on plenty of films like that where I've had to legitimately say to somebody, this doesn't read. I yeah. know what you're going for, but this doesn't read. The audience is not going to have a clue what's actually happening in this particular moment to the point where I've probably pissed off quite a few people. But it's like, it don't work, mate. <laughs> it's, just like, <laughs> yeah. it's not even like, it's even open to interpretation. It's like, they're not going to yeah. notice whatsoever. And, and that's the thing with us comparing them constantly to David Lynch. Like, I think I mentioned this when we reviewed Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. You may watch his films and think that there are many random things going on. But in fact, if you dig 
a little deeper, every single little thing in his films has been meticulously thought about and yeah. there's a reason for absolutely every single little thing in his films. Whereas this is like, that may be the case, but it is just random. <laughs> it's the vulgarization of David Lynch. Yeah. I don't even know if that's a word, but that's what it feels like to me. It's like a vulgar interpretation of David Lynch. It's the naive version, isn't it, really? Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, like you do get like vulgar auteurs or, you know, gauteurs, but like people who make bad movies that are particularly identifiable as being that filmmaker. Yeah. This is what he's like. He's on the same spectrum. David Lynch is on one side. <laughs> he's definitely on the spectrum. <laughs> But boy, is he. He's on more than one spectrum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but David Lynch is on one side and he's on the other, but they both represent like different sides of that same spectrum. Yeah. I'm sorry about this, but I have to mention the shower scene again. But he yeah. is bleeding a lot from a place that we don't see. <laughs> and it made me think, like, there's a there's a there's something called the uh, rejected cartoon movie. And there's a big um, uh, quote from that, which is, my anus is bleeding. <laughs> and that's all I could think of when I saw him in the shower. Uh, <laughs> because that is a lot of blood pouring out of a man. Yeah. And then his wife's on the phone to the neighbor afterwards. And she's like, he seems to be fine. I mean, he just lost four pints of blood in the shower. <laughs> and he smashed nearly every laptop in the house, but he seems to be fine. Yeah. There's no one that bleeds that much and is okay. No. Unless, you know, a woman of a certain time of the month. <laughs> that I'll might not that make about. the cut. No. That might not make the cut, you know. It will now. <laughs> <laughs> now you've asked, I'll leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> and he appears to be a writer of novels i know and i love the fact that that comes out of nowhere and then goes nowhere you could again take that out what the fuck does he write <sighs> like it says he writes novels what? What? what and then there's at least two scenes of him on the phone to his agent who we never see he seems very ungrateful for the fact that he's had a hit novel and he's been <laughs> lumbered with having to write a follow-up i feel like this whole film is actually just a retelling of what happened to Stephen King when he got run over. You know, and he got run over and then got addicted to oxycodone or whatever it is. Maybe that's the mistake. Maybe like these are actually Stephen King joints, and uh, Neil Breen's a character in the yeah, yeah, like series, it. and it'll be revealed. It's like, it's like an in the mouth of madness type situation we've got going on. Yeah, it's Stephen <laughs> King. It's all his yeah. fault. I also, as well, I have referred to him like as being a saggy face looking dude, but it's only because he's constantly like putting himself up against like these model esque women in his films because yeah, he yeah. kind of sees himself on that level. But the thing that is the real giveaway is his hair because yeah. it's not so much hair as it looking like his head is being haunted by a dirty cloud. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's, it's got that kind of quality to it, wouldn't you say? Mm. And it's definitely been dyed. I mean, has it? Has it? Yeah. I think he was 52 at the time of making this film. But again, there's many 52-year-olds that look way younger than Neil Breen. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he's one of those people that exists out of time and reality. Yes. He's just Neil Breen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if you said, ask me what his age was, because 
in my notes, I didn't look at his birthday. I saw that his his actual birthday was November twenty third, the same as myself. He's pretty much the same age as my mum. Yeah. Okay. So there we go. I mean, I was looking at it, and I was like, the thing is, when I actually think about, oh well, what age is he? I can't actually put a pin. He's in it. ageless. I, yeah, I'd say like he's over fifty for sure. Yeah. But where that pin goes between fifty and eighty, I just don't know. You know. No. He is an oddity in every way, shape, and form. Mm. We talk about him being an author. The thing as well that's very identifiable as being very Breen-esque is the dialogue as well and the way people communicate with each other. Nobody talks to each other. And there might be scenes where people have dialogue, but nobody talks to each other. They have their own conversations all at the same time, separately from each other. Yeah. One person will be talking about one thing and another person will be talking about another thing and they will just take it in turns to say something from their own individual topic. And that like runs throughout the film. It is incredibly baffling. <laughs> but yeah. it's like I can't stop. Can't stop listening, can't stop watching. And there are scenes where like there's a scene where Neil Breen's talking to his wife and it's like almost soap opera like don't you look away from me and this is what you wanted and all this kind of thing. And it's talking like they're moving. Yeah. Or like there's actual blocking going on. But really, they just sat there looking at each other, you know, in their opposing couches. <laughs> Not in... Like I said, it's very George Lucas. It's very George <laughs> Lucas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then Jabba the Hutt comes in, you know, in full CGI. <laughs> Neil Breen stands up and accidentally steps on his tail. Um... <laughs> yeah. Boba Fett winks at the camera. Oh. And says, I can't believe you've, you've done this to me. I can't believe <laughs> I cannot, you cgi I cannot believe film. you blew up the Death Star. I cannot believe. <laughs> I cannot believe you are my father. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in some instances, it feels like he's read some like screenwriting or, or filmmaking books, but his interpretation of what they say has been completely mangled. So mm-hmm. in terms of like the basic storytelling of conflict is the seed of drama, that kind of thing, where he must have read something like that and gone, right, I'm going to put conflict in this scene, but misinterpreted it that you actually need cause and effect and reasons for conflict that drive the story. He just interprets it as... I need a conflict in this scene. Yeah. So yeah. things, arguments will just appear out of nowhere in a scene just mm-hmm. to drive the scene along. And that happens constantly throughout the film. Yeah. And if he doesn't have a conflict, for example, for him and his wife in a certain scene, he will create conflict with brand new characters. Like, to be honest, yeah. the neighbors as characters, they're superfluous to the plot. Yeah, in a way which you can just pluck that out and it doesn't actually matter. It doesn't add up to a thing. And yeah. there's this whole like subplot with them having this breakdown between their sexual relationship. Yeah, you know, yeah. between the two of them, it culminates with her shooting at his car because he spends more time and attention doting on the car than he does doting on his wife. And she accidentally shoots him at that <laughs> yeah. point. I mean, that's where the famous scene where I can't believe you committed suicide. I cannot believe you committed suicide. It's brilliant. It's a classic scene of bad cinema. Exactly. So they kind of stage it as, oh, he he shot himself. Yeah. There's no resolution to any of that. 
there's yeah, there's a moment it's... where it said, "Oh, the police around at the house," but we don't we don't find out what happens. That's just left behind. So it's like you'll create conflict, and then when it's kind of like it's like, "Oh, it served its purpose, hitting those beats in my script writing book." I yeah. don't need to do anything more with that now. That whole sequence just feels like he watched American Beauty once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. His mind. <laughs> yeah. It's just wonderful though, like, I'm going to shoot up the car. Oh, I shot him first time. This level of just incompetence and weirdness, it's one of those things where it's really difficult to get right because with a lot of bad filmmakers, it usually just comes off as boring. But with, yeah. with Neil Breen's films, you just can't look away. You're constantly wanting to know what's going to happen next with yeah. any of his films. It's just like what weird thing is going to happen next or what weird mm-hmm. choice is he going to make next? Yeah, or what teenage girl's going to shove their tits to him or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what weirdly inappropriate thing is going yeah. to happen next involving Neil Breen? Because yeah. everybody's into Neil's Breen in this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a whole segment of this film as well that is about him talking about how in love with a girl he was when he was nine or ten years old and he's like, oh, yeah. I love you. I've loved you since you were 10 and stuff like that. It's like, ah, to see a 60-year-old man say that yeah. is pretty disconcerting. I mean, there's no way that Neil Breen doesn't have to legally introduce himself to his neighbours <laughs> whenever he moves house. It's definitely part of his contract with the authorities. <laughs> yeah, but there's a great scene with the neighbour's daughter when she's mm-hmm. trying to lead him on and he's going... And they're in the, I think they're in the bathroom or something. It's supposed to be, but you just see a wall. Yeah, but there's something going on below the frame, and he's going, "No, you can't do this. Stop it." You know that yeah. kind of thing. He says, "Please stop. You can't do this anymore." And I'm pretty sure if you just pan down, he should be tugging him off. Yeah. Because <laughs> <It's like, laughs> as well, like while he's saying all this, she's like looking directly into the camera, like she's Tim from the Office. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, like. <laughs> Like it's suddenly gonna zoom in on a on a face and the curb your enthusiasm theme's about to start. Yeah. And I don't know whether you <laughs> noticed as well that Neil has a, a hair fetish. Um he likes sniffing hair. That's definitely like a turn on for him. Yeah, he definitely does. Like I say, there's that previous actress who says there's a me too thing going on. There definitely is. Yeah, definitely a me too thing because it's even written into one of the characters when after Jim's inverted commas suicide, I think it's the wife goes ah uh, it was my fault i led him to this yeah it's almost like enabling his sexual harassment yeah yeah and it's like it was her fault apparently <laughs> she led him to it we've got a kind of running theme between these filmmakers when we look at like tommy Wiseau's the room and neil breen with this is that they both like to show their ass crack yeah. and they both have a very problematic relationship with women and sex yeah and sex yeah <laughs> I mean, you get this with all these kind of filmmakers where they're really just playing out their fantasies within the context of a production. But that's the thing with Neil Breen. You can't quite put your finger on it because he's so unable. You can't read him. So you can't even come to any like solid conclusions as to what the intentions are. You can just sort of like, you just have to sort of claw at it and like, I think this is what's happening. I think this is where he's going. I can't say for definite. He's starting to sound like Neil Breen again. (laughs) (laughs) As well, we also get the element of the fact that like he he kind of kisses everybody in this film as well, like all of the female characters at some point or another. Yeah. 
there's plenty of Neil Breen lip on lip action in this. I mean, the best lip on lip action is with his wife, who, I mean, she is repulsed by him clearly. Yeah, because I've mentioned before, but she's always giving him the side face. I mean, to be honest, she is the punchback of this whole film. Yeah, she is. She just has a real rough old time of it. <laughs> the thing is, to get these people, he must pay. Yeah. But I was yeah. reading, as I say, an interview with a previous actress, and she did say, she was asked a question, what was the script like before you signed on? And she said, there was no script. There was paper that Neil Breen had scribbled on that we were told was our script. Yeah. But nobody could make sense of it. So I have to look at this as well and think, that's why everybody who talks, talks like Neil Breen mm. as well. It's because nobody knows their lines until the day of shooting. And <laughs> he's just like handing them yellow legal pad with some like Written in chicken Byro, scratch yeah. handwriting on it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just like the same line repeated. Yeah. As you mentioned, it has to weave in this uh, element of government corruption, which is also a part of, as you say, all of his films. This is the one... It's very tacked on. Yeah. And I thought it was going somewhere at one point where they mention, oh, he's hacked into all of the governments, all of the big businesses, <laughs> and he knows all of the secrets. And we never find out what those secrets no. are or what those no. corruptions are, but he's found out all of them. And it's like, I think his wife mentions that it's going to be dangerous for him to know all of this or to have all of this information. Mm -hmm. I think, or maybe it's Leah, because Leah does get kidnapped. And I thought that was what it was building towards. Oh, he's been, she's been kidnapped. <laughs> Here's where the government step in and that kind of thing. And it just, nothing happens with it. He phases through a door. That whole sequence ends so abruptly. It's just quite wonderful how you think it's going to go somewhere and that this is like the third act climax. And no, it just moves on to something else. <laughs> it's just another thing that happens on a Tuesday in Neil Breen's life. <laughs> Discovers he can like dissolve through walls. <laughs> I'm just going to phase through this door now, if that's okay. Yeah. And I love how he saves her, a woman who has been kidnapped and bound and gagged. And he makes it to it. He takes off her a gag and a bound around yeah. her eyes. And then immediately says, I'm sorry, I have to put this shit back on you. And immediately like, and it's like, why do you have to gag her? You don't want her to see you phase through a, <laughs> through a door. Why does she need to be gagged for that, you fucking weirdo? Like, I'm sorry, I have to. You won't be able to handle it because you're a woman. <laughs> I have this power. You're getting hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> this whole thing starts off with a shot where, like, Leah is apparently kidnapped. And it's possibly the most confusing shot in the entire film, which says a lot. And it's supposed to be, like, an establishing shot from the point of view of a kidnapper who's hiding in the bushes, I think, mm. and we're supposed to be watching Leah drive into a driveway. But the shot is just of, like, the wall of the side of the <laughs> yeah. house. Yeah. And, I mean, this is not an exaggeration for about 90%, 95% of the frame. Yeah. You're looking at a wall, Empty wall. and a plug socket. Yeah. And then you hear the car pull up, and you see the tiniest sliver of car in the bottom right-hand yeah. corner, <laughs> pulling. And that's something that I don't know how you make that mistake unless you're intending to make that mistake. Yeah, I mean, that particular shot reminded me so much of Bowfinger when they're making Chubby Rain because it felt like they're literally oh just... Oh, God, yeah. 
it's like she's a, uh, an actual famous person and they're literally just hiding out in the bushes trying to film her and somebody <laughs> goes, comes out and says, gotcha suckers. <laughs> and it's like, it just reminded me so much of that. <laughs> yeah, it does definitely have a both yeah. vibe to it. I think the craziness just gets amped up in that last half hour of this film. Everything yeah. just falls apart where it just, just sort of devolves into Neil Breen's very vague notions of unearthing a conspiracy, but he doesn't really know what the yeah. conspiracy is. <laughs> like, and that's with all of his films. He he wants to talk about conspiracy theories and sure. big business and all that kind of stuff, but he doesn't yeah. quite know. He hates drugs. He hates the whole therapy thing. He's very kind of like new agey. It's so naive. <laughs> yeah. It's a big question. I've got it in my notes as well. I always wanted to ask this. Do you think Neil Breen is balls deep in QAnon conspiracies? Probably. Yeah. I, see, I think he is, but I also think he maybe doesn't have the the kind of the presence for that. He's more like, I'm into my conspiracies. <laughs> Here's the shit that I've come across. Yeah. His whole like shtick of mixing sex with death like that's definitely a running theme of this film sex yeah. and death and it climaxes with the suicide is it emily who's the wife yes and her like suicide is juxtaposed with his sex scene with leah yeah it's almost like he's been set free and like only in a neil breen film will that happen <laughs> It's like, like, it's like, it happened in a Neil Breen film and Steven Spielberg's Munich. <laughs> Maybe he'd watch Munich and go, yeah, yeah. It's all very studied and like heavily researched, and it's like it's a love letter to cinema. <laughs> I, but that's the thing. I love how like his wife committing suicide is like a representation of him being allowed to start this new life. Almost like, oh, well, this needed to happen so that I could be... I'm free! A, a weird fucking dude in the woods with my ghost wife. Because that's the thing with both suicides. There's no follow-up. There's no grieving no. period. There's no funeral. Nothing. <laughs> it's like, they, yeah. as soon as they've died, that's it. Bye. Yeah, Move on. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Oh. It's just pretty wonderful. It truly is a magical <laughs> it film. It's a magical time. <laughs> I remember. I do remember saying, I said to myself after I finished this film going, it's a magical time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a magical time. It's always the same audio yeah, as well. It, yeah, they repeated that as well. Like you had the kids say it once and then she repeated it. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, we've talked about the classic suicide, I can't believe you commit a suicide scene, but we haven't really talked about the last five or six minutes of this film with the whole oh, press yeah. conference. Because, yeah, sure. one, who organised the press conference? It just <laughs> happens out of nowhere. <laughs> and it's like, I managed to get all of these. I think one of the characters is called Insurance President. Yeah. It's like, hi, I'm the president of insurance. Because, <laughs> yeah, this film has two classic sequences and it's that suicide sequences and and the whole end of this film which is just yeah. so wonderful <laughs> and i like how we somehow got all of these kind of like high standing figures of these institutes like you have bank president senator congresswoman wall street broker insurance president and they're all stood there like i've been a bad boy <laughs> 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 i've done a terrible thing <laughs> yeah and they all take turns shooting themselves in the head 
And also, there's so obviously like people from his architecture firm or people he's met in Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just... I'll give you an extra five percent off my normal fee. Yeah. If, Definitely. Uh, if if Definitely. you come and stand in on this scene. Yeah. <laughs> that whole sequence for me perfectly encapsulates his naivety, his childlike yeah. thinking in terms of how to put across these thoughts and ideas mm-hmm. and how it just completely boils down to this sequence. Yeah. And it's probably the most it's pure breen. It's pure, yeah. unadulterated bream, which is why I was saying at the start of the conversation where there's just such a, a purity to it. No matter what everything else, like all the dodgy stuff we've been talking about, and which is really hard to like put your finger on, but it's Neil Breen and there's no one else yeah. doing it in that way. You can say what you want, but this it's a unique vision from a very unique filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, there are only two things that you can be sure about in life. That is death and Neil Breen <laughs> uncovering the greatest corruption known to man <laughs> in a in film. In a press conference. <laughs> in a press conference. It's it's a green screen. A com- and they always end up killing themselves or he kills yeah. them. Or- he really has that kind of thing about him. You know, that's It goes through all of them. He is the outsider that knows more than he should or is able to do more than he should. Yeah. And ends up taking on insurance <laughs> and bankers. Yeah. And, and like I said, this is a, a transitional film. So it's almost like, again, he's putting the, the first part of his career to bed where it's like, I've done a kind of remake of Double Down with a bit of yeah. I'm here now in it. Yeah, this is just before he goes full CGI Yoda. Yeah. And like I said, the last five or six minutes of this film is looking towards the future with the whole green screen thing in front of stock photos. This is the Phantom Menace. It is. <laughs> I love the fact that he decided that this method of putting very poorly inserted green screen figures in front of very obvious stock photos was the way forward. (laughs) Because in his five film (laughs) retrospective, he's always trying to push, get things better and go in areas where he hasn't gone before. Oh, many years. (laughs) Yeah. That's what all of the models would say as well. (laughs) (laughs) But I just love that in his mind, his own internal logic, that this particular method he thought was the way forward to the point where his latest film, K to Torture Crossing, is entirely shot in green screen using this method. The entire film is like that. And it is something to behold. Mm -hmm. And we do know that he's working on something at the moment. Mm. So who knows what we'll see. What's the next step from entirely green screen? It's got to be motion capture. Yeah, I mean... If anything, it's aided his uh, his prolificness as well. It's, it's the workflow sped up. He <laughs> <It's like>, <laughs> yeah. could probably shoot a film in about five days. <laughs> yeah, he's gone full Ridley Scott with yeah, it now. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, I've done my period of making a film and waiting a few years. Now I'm going to be making four films a year, <laughs> and I look forward to this period, this new period of brilliance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Moving over to the stats and facts, we do normally uh, go over like the box office and uh, critical reception for the films that we cover, but in this case, there isn't very much to go on in either regard. No. So what I will do is, there's definitely nothing in regards to box office that I could find. However, there were a few reviews that I were, was able to come up with and an audience score and IMDb rating. So 
on Rotten Tomatoes, the film doesn't have enough reviews in order to have a tomato meter reading. Instead, it does have an audience score of 50%. Mm-hmm. And of the three critic reviews that it does have, all of them are rotten. And the blurb for them are Daniel Barnes from Dare Daniel. Never heard of it. Gives it one out of five. He says, uh, it's as though Breen beamed this incomprehensible, egomaniacal, paranoid fever dream from an alien planet <laughs> that studied human behavior but didn't pay attention. <laughs> Tim Brayton of Alternate Ending said it's maddening and grotesque and freakishly magnetic. And he gave that 0.5 <laughs> out of 5. <laughs> and Jay Stone of Canada.com, this, uh, is this the official website for Canada? Says, uh, don't use up all your derision on the first part of the movie because you'll need it at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave that one out of five. Yeah. As I mentioned, it has a 50% audience score, and that's after um, 100 plus ratings. Woo-hoo. And has a 2.9 out of five average rating. Yeah. Now, I don't have anything in regards to the box office but here we go Andy I've got something else to go through I've been on the IMDB review page and so these are reviews that audience members have given for this film I'm going to read them out and I want you to tell me what score they have provided this film on a 1 to 10 star basis okay okay so uh, you know you want to be getting as close as you can but I understand if you're 1 or 2 stars out in either way you're close enough so the first one says Rename this to I Hate Laptops. Seriously, how many laptops did he smash in this movie? That's the full review. 10 out of 10. <laughs> it actually got a 1 out of 10. Ah. This is from W. Buttle, who loves laptops. <laughs> uh, this is from Cinema Oddity, and he says that it's anime at its finest. <laughs> Fateful Findings provides some truly revolutionary techniques in terms of animation and voice acting. I honestly thought this was live action at first. Its director, Adam, is a pure genius. Possibly my favorite video game since Shrek on the GameCube. <laughs> or a pro Nobus Lucifer. What would you think? 9 out of 10. 7 out of 10. I believe that's a 10 out of 10. Oh. Here we go. Neil Breen is a god among of cinema. I tell you, the new Christopher Nolan, the new Tarantino... And I'm not even going to just talk about directors. He's not just a director of the film, but he's also the main actor in this movie and all of his other movies. Neil Breen is the new and improved Mel Brooks. I sure as hell hope this man has some beautiful films coming out in the future. 10 out of 10. 6 out of 10? You'd think that was a 10 out of 10, right? (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to get any of these Definitely not David Lynch. I'll move on to another one. So... uh, This is from Cornicus, and he says, I found this film and was inspired to hack my ex's computer. (laughs) And the review goes, (laughs) as a professional psychopath, I love this film. I love the suicide because that is what happened, obviously, when she shot the car full of holes. Uh... I was shocked. I love this film. This film gave me the strength to pursue a career as a professional hacker. I hack only for psychotic purposes. <laughs> My ex-wife Rose's computer was hacked by me, so I could send her evil messages that will display on her screen tomorrow morning when she wakes up. And I can't wait! And then there's an edit. He says, oh my god, you should have seen the look on her face. She was so scared. And then there's another edit. She wasn't scared, she was just pretending to annoy me. And then there was another edit. 
Hey, it's Rose here. I hacked into Cone's computer long ago to make sure he doesn't hack me. And edit four says, what? Edit five, yes, Cone. Now just please stop this. Edit six, no, I will not. And edit seven, I'm done with all of this from you two. I am putting an end to this conversation. And then it says, Edward Snowden has disabled editing. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think that gave it out of 10? Seven out of 10. <laughs> That's a full 10 out of 10. But you know what? Ah. I'd say you're close enough. You're at least on the right side. <laughs> okay. And uh, the final review I have, it says, Alternate Universe Laptop Abuse <laughs> is the title. And uh, just to give the ending, it says, The mystical New Age narrative has an almost primal indigenous quality. A hacker shaman struggles to tell the real truth while always fighting off incredibly beautiful women. He's vaguely mystical himself, an inexplicably successful author and computer hacker who works on a series of turned-off laptops, frequently <laughs> flipping them and spilling coffee on them as some sort of ritual. Breen also goes to see two psychiatrists who pretty much tell him he's great and that his decisions are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the final one I have. And what do you think? Two out of ten. Ten out of ten. Ah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. These these have been tough ones, but you know what? I think it's a win for everybody involved. Because <laughs> we all got to watch Fateful Findings. <laughs> we all had a magical time. We had a magical time. And the film has an IMDB rating of 4.3 out of Woo-hoo. 10 which a lot of the reviews seem to have an um, issue with. Both those that are 10 out of 10 and those that are 1 out of 10. <laughs> it's either too low or too high. It's actually one of the lower rated Neil Breen films. Actually. It is. I think it's maybe because more people have seen this one. <laughs> yes. I think his last one is actually like his highest rated or Twisted yeah. Pear. I think that's Twisted like 7. <laughs> Twisted Pear. Twisted Pear. <laughs> again, again, it does sound like what happened to my bollocks. Yeah. It's definitely oh. it's definitely what I was telling people for a while. Yeah. Well, why were you off school, Gareth, for the last three weeks? Well, I had a twisted pair. You know? <laughs> I had to be rushed to the hospital because of my twisted yeah. pair. Yeah, one of my testicles was called Cade. Yeah. And he had a tortured crossing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's had a crossing. <laughs> On that fateful finding that one day. Yeah. <laughs> but it's okay. I'm able to pass through now. Yeah. Uh. And I'm here now. So let's double down on this. <laughs> so Andy, do you have any final thoughts about this Neil Breen magnum opus? Is it Breenius? Yeah, I mean, it is pure Breenius. He is an island of his own. And uh, I look forward to what he makes next. And whatever poor souls are involved in it, I do apologise. There's no film like a Neil Breen film. He's created his own brand. He is a brand unto himself. And um, there's a lot of people who look forward to whatever he's making now. Yeah. I don't think he quite understands... Object permanence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because I even watched the Cade film update because I think that film got selected. It got the popular vote at the Hollywood Independent Film Festival and it got selected and won an award and stuff like that. And I think he... The way he was talking about it was as if he, it was proper like vindication yeah. of his efforts. Yeah, finally. Rather yeah. than everyone wants to see this crazy bad film, <laughs> sort of thing. Well, you see, there's a fantastic documentary out there. I know other people have talked about this as well, but there's a fantastic documentary called Best Bad Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's about the making of Troll 2. And it's made by one of the actors who's in Troll 2. 
and the meeting up with other actors that are involved and the following the filmmaker behind the film and they're going to a festival screening of Troll 2. Now, the issue is with the director is that he's not really in on the joke. He doesn't get why it has this following now. He thinks it has this following because, as you mentioned, he's been fully vindicated and it's like, oh, people are finally coming around to what I was trying to do with that film. But then when he gets to the screening and he sees them reacting to it live, you can see this almost like dawning on an instance of they're watching the film wrong, as in they're not watching it the way I intended them yeah, to. Yeah. And they're laughing at the wrong parts. They're reacting to it. And you can see it almost changing him. Like, it's almost a heartbreaking moment. I mean, the film's still awful, but, you know, it's still this moment where it's like he suddenly understands. And I don't think Neil Breen's had that moment yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm not even sure that he's capable of having that moment, to be honest. Yeah, <clears throat> for sure, for sure. I mean, if he hasn't had that moment by now, he's not going to have it. Because he is a sentient AI, so, you know. It's... Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> That's what I he's been trying to AI. tell us. He's chat GBT. He is. He's <laughs> come back from the future to warn us. <laughs> About government corruption. Yeah. <laughs> he's the gift. <laughs> oh, fantastic. It's been a magical day, Andy. Mm-hmm. Truly has been a magical yeah. episode. And, again, I can't believe... It's the 100th episode. I cannot believe it's the 100th episode. I cannot believe it. But that's all we have time for on this episode of, I nearly said Best Forgotten Movies, and that would have been rather apt, Yes. of Popcorn Digest. If you join us next time, we're going to be looking at, and this is something that we do with every season, we always look at a film from this franchise, and we haven't done yet. We're going to be looking at Alien 3. Alien Cubed. (laughs) Alien Cubed. (laughs) The work print version of the film that's available on all of the Blu-rays. Um, it's the extended cut. However, I would say that if you have any understanding of either version of the film, you'll be fine for the episode. But definitely watch the extended cut if you haven't already. Yeah. But until then, I can't believe it, but I've been Gareth. And how could you, Gareth? I just can't believe we've got to this far. It's just not like you. <laughs> <laughs> that is my favourite line, actually, looking at the notes now, like, there's a bit where after Jim's suicide one character says it's just not like him and it's like I put in brackets in my notes he's never committed suicide before (laughs) Jim's never committed suicide before like airplane (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) thanks for listening